Now we come in this 17th chapter to the experience of the children of Israel thirsting and then uh, the way that God provided water for them. I'll begin reading now at chapter 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Zin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? You see, the children of Israel were complaining everlastingly. They start murmuring again. God graciously meets their needs, and then something else comes up. And they begin to cry out, complain, find fault. And Moses is getting a little impatient, I think, with him. I'm reading now verse 4. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And Moses was, I think, willing at this time to turn his job over to somebody else. And he was pretty much put out with him, complaining and whining and finding fault. Today there are many churches just in this same spiritual condition, and they generally think they're in an excellent condition. Now will you notice God's provision now for them. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take it in thine hand, and go. Remember now that rod at the very beginning was to be a badge and seal of the authority and power of Moses. Now notice, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa or Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is the first experience here of the rock and the water that came from the rock. And I think that probably here at the very beginning, we need to ascertain what we're talking about. What does the rock represent? And we're not left here to guesswork or our own speculation or our own wisdom, but we are now not only dependent upon the Spirit of God, but He steps in and gives us the answer. Now, you'll recall that we turned before to the First Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and that there we saw the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. And after that experience, we're told, verse 4, "...and did all drink 
And by the way, it says, "...and did all eat the same spiritual meat." That's verse 3. That's manna. Now, that manna was Christ, as we've seen. And John makes that clear. But notice verse 4, "...and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ." Now, remember, all these things happened unto them for examples unto us. Now, the bread they ate, manna, is a picture of Christ. He's the bread of life. But he's also the water of life. And this rock, I think, is a beautiful picture of Christ. And it reveals here, in contrast to the unbelief of the people, You see, they doubted God here, and the rock is a good, solid foundation. But they were building on a butter foundation. They doubted God. They were leaning on cobwebs and broken reeds. And that small cloud of doubt was hiding the face of God from them. Now, that rock's a beautiful picture of Christ. You remember the psalmist said, "'Lead me to the rock. That is higher than I. That's Christ. And again, the psalmist said in Psalm 78, 35, "...and they remembered that God was their rock." And then the Lord Jesus said, "...upon this rock I will build my church." And that rock is Christ. And Peter says, "...the stone the builders rejected, the same has become the headstone of the corner." And no other foundation, Paul says, can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus, as the hymn has it, is a rock in a weary land. And though this is a marvelous picture of him as the foundation, the one we rest upon, the church is built on him, but it's the last place to go to drink, to get a drink of water, And I don't mean to be facetious, but you couldn't even get hard water from granite, from a rock. It's like getting blood from a turnip or orange juice from a doorknob. But look upon that rock, and you can admire its sterling quality, its durability, and the great lessons from it. Christ is the rock. You can test it, analyze it, but you can't drink it. Jesus is a rock. But listen, friends... His beautiful life and all of his durability will not save you. His teaching will not redeem your soul. His life and teachers are like polished marble engraved, and you can apply them to your life with carborundum or optician's rouge. But, my friend, it won't really save you. It may polish you a little. And he spoke of the fact that you could dash your foot against a stone, that he was that kind of rock, but that you can fall on that stone for salvation. Now, there's no human effort to get water from the rock. The rock was smitten. That riven rock brought forth life-giving waters. Jesus was crucified, and nothing short of that would save us, not his life, but his death. And he came and... Then he left, and he said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm coming to you. And he says, if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. And that flood was released 
on the day of Pentecost. But this didn't end Israel's experience with the rock. When we get over to the book of Numbers, we're going to find out they came back again and began to complain about no water. And Moses, at that time, he, you remember, smote the rock twice. There are those that say he should just have smitten it once. No, that's not it. If you turn over to the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers, read it, verse 8, it says, "...speak to the rock." The rock had already been smitten. And after Christ was crucified 1,900 years ago, it's not necessary for him to be crucified. When he said it's finished, as he hung on the cross, it was finished. And God is satisfied with what Jesus did for you. And the question is, are you satisfied? He died to save us. And that is all that God is asking. Well, there comes from that rock spiritual blessings today and the fullness of blessings and the waters are gushing forth to parched lips. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. The rock is smitten once and there's flowing an abundance of water. The fountain is brimful. The stream is bankful. The world is not able to contain it. But in spite of that, there are many men's souls that today are shriveled up and their tongues are parched. Millions are dying for want of spiritual drink. The channel is blocked. It's log jammed by doubts. It's corroded by sin. It's insulated by indifference. And it's damned by those today who profess to know him but do not know him. I'm disturbed today. I'm disturbed today as I look about me. But friends, I ask you the question personally in particular. Have you been to that smitten rock? And have you had a drink there? Have you taken the living waters? He says that if you drink of that water, you'll never thirst again. This is the picture that's given to us here. Now we come to another incident here in the 17th chapter, and it's another experience on this wilderness march that these people are taking, and it is their experience with Amalek, the Amalekites. And the Amalekites represent the flesh, and you're going to find where the victory was won. Now will you notice verse 8, "...then came Amalek..." and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, perhaps we should stop there at verse 10 for just a moment to notice several things that are quite unusual here. First of all, why we find that this man Amalek is a grandson of Esau, and that's the flesh, you'll recall. We saw that Esau represents that. And the Amalekites became an enemy enemy that never ceased to be an enemy of the children of Israel. 
And you find here that you can't overcome the flesh just by your own effort. And it's quite interesting to note that here, for the first time, the children of Israel engage in a warfare. And that's the picture of the flesh warreth against the spirit, and the spirit warreth against the flesh, and these are contrary. Remember, that's what Paul wrote. And that is the picture here. That is a conflict that goes on. And Israel now, for the first time, is engaged in a conflict. But there went to the top of the mountain Moses and Aaron and Hur. Verse 11, it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now, you'll note here that the battle actually was fought up on top of the mountain. It was fought by prayer. It was fought by and won by Moses. It was not won by the fighting of these people. They were not adept at warfare yet. They were not experienced soldiers, and they didn't do very well. The very minute that Moses' hands came down and he wasn't able to hold them up, why the children of Israel began to lose, and they would have lost. And the important thing is that the Holy Spirit is the only one that can give us a victory over the flesh. The victory is only as the believer walks in the Spirit. When you and I act independently, why, Amalek or the flesh gains an easy victory. And we are apt, of course, to spare the flesh. Notice, though, what God has to say here, and it's a remarkable thing that he has to say. And when Moses' hands were held up, they won. You and I will never be able to overcome the flesh. It's only the Spirit of God that can do that. Now, verse 13, "...and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua." And I think we ought to stop there to have our attention called to this man Joshua for the first time, because this is the man who's going to succeed Moses. And you can see already that he's being prepared for this position. God was preparing him. He was an ordinary man, as we shall see. But God prepared him for the task. Now, God says here that I want you to let Joshua know this. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now, God's going to get rid of the flesh, friends, and thank God for that. If the Lord took all of the church right now into heaven as it is, and they were not changed, we are told that the dead are to be raised incorruptible, and the living are to be changed. They're to be transformed. They're to have the same thing happen to them that happened to the Lord, the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And if that didn't take place and the church was taken to heaven like it is right now, it wouldn't be heaven, friends. It would be just like it is where you are and where I am because you and I would wreck the place with this old nature we got. God's going to get rid of it. God has made the statement here, I'll utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And I say today, thank God, he's going to get rid of this old nature of Vernon McGee. I've been dragging it around like a corpse for years, and I'd like to get rid of it. But I find out that that old nature, I don't get rid of it, and it reasserts itself again and again. Now we are told here in verse 15 of chapter 17 of Exodus, "...and Moses built an altar, called the name of it, Jehovah Nisi, for he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." Now, there are three things that are here that are very important. The first thing that God mentioned is this, that he's going to ultimately get rid of Amalek. I'll utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek. God's going to get rid of the old nature. And then the second thing is this, that the Lord will never compromise with this old nature that I've got and that you've got. Never will he. He'll have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You're not going to reach the place, friends, that you're going to get rid of the old nature in this life. God will have war from generation to generation. And the important thing is, therefore, the second thing is, God will never compromise with it. And that means that there will be the third thing. This constant conflict will go on as long as you and I are in this body and in this life. The Spirit warreth against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit, and these are contrary. This is the thing that you and I need to recognize today. And here was this battle with Amalek and it represents the flesh. Now, when we come to chapter 18, we come to a rather unusual experience, and it's the last experience, by the way. We have here Moses turning to worldly wisdom rather than to revelation. God has been leading him by revelation directly, And now Moses is turning, and he's going to listen to his father-in-law. His father-in-law is going to come visit him, and Moses is going to listen to him, which, of course, he should not. Now, this is all quite interesting here and rather important, too. To begin with, Moses has come into the land of Midian now with the children of Israel. They're going by Mount Sinai. And now the father-in-law of Moses brings his wife to him. Now, apparently, when they went down to Egypt, and we saw that experience where she called him a bloody husband, that apparently he sent her back either then or shortly after that. And she was apparently not down there for the exodus that took place out of the land of Egypt. And now that they're out of the land... 
and she'd been sent back to her father, why Jethro, the father-in-law, brings her to Moses. And while he's there, why Jethro has a nice little visit with Moses. And by the way, I must call your attention to this again, because there'll be some people listening today that were not listening before. The name of Moses' wife was Zipporah, and it means sparrow, or it means birdie, a young bird. In other words, this is the first instance of a wife named Lady Bird. And that's exactly what Moses' wife's name was, Lady Bird. Now, I want us to notice this, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. When Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her back, and her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I've been an alien in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for the God of my father said he was mine help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh." And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I, thy father-in-law Jethro, am come unto thee and thy wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the travail that had come upon them by the way, and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians." And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. For in the thing wherein thou dealt proudly, he was above them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, the thing that interests me here, and I wonder if you noticed it as we read this extended section, is that the father-in-law of Moses brought his wife to him, and apparently there was a marvelous relationship between Moses and his father-in-law. In fact, they seem to be buddies, as we would use the term. They seem to be very close together. Moses tells him all that God has done for him, how God had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and Jethro's interested in it. In fact, he shows a great interest in it, and he enters into this in a very marvelous way. He is interested in Moses and reveals that. And you notice that when Moses went out to meet them, his father-in-law and his wife, why, we're told here that Moses kissed his father-in-law. 
but nothing about kissing his wife. Now, the two sons. Somebody says, well, Moses wrote this. Yes, that's right. And I wonder, again, now we've talked about Moses' family life before, and I'm not going into it again, other than just call your attention to this, that it confirms the thing that we said, that the family relationship was probably not as it should have been. But because of the way God has led the children of Israel, and I think that probably Moses' father-in-law was rather skeptical when Moses announced he was going back to deliver the children of Israel out of bondage. I'm sure that he told the neighbors, I don't know what's come over my son-in-law. He's got some pretty big notions. He thinks God's called him to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And I just don't believe that the God he serves can do that. Well, God did do it. And apparently, this has brought now Jethro to a saving knowledge of God. And this is very important to see. And we see he offers a burnt offering here. Now, we find that the father-in-law decides to stay for a little while. Verse 13, "...it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning until the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning until evening?" And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to form it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, and thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, shall show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. And thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so. Then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Now, somebody is apt to say, 
well, what in the world is wrong with this? You seem to think that there's something wrong here. Well, may I say to you that on the surface, everything looks fine. Moses' father-in-law obviously loved him, had great respect for him, and was enthusiastic about him. And he's come out now, and he's brought Moses' wife to him. And so he hangs around for a few days for a visit, and then he sees how busy Moses is judging the people. So he comes up with a suggestion to lighten the load of Moses. Now, somebody is apt to say, well, what in the world is wrong with that? It doesn't seem to me to be anything radically wrong there at all. Well, there are two kinds of wisdom in this world. Someone has said, the poet has, when ignorance is blessed, is folly to be wise. Now, actually, this passage here teaches when it's foolish to be wise. And the thing that Moses' father-in-law was suggesting was the wisdom of the world. That was not God's wisdom. And it was not the thing God wanted done. This incident reveals how easy it is to accept the wisdom of the world and to follow the pattern of the world and not look to God. I personally believe that today the reason that most of our churches are in trouble is because men have been brought into the church and put on a board are given a place of prominence, a high position, because they are men who've been successful in business and out in the business world, they've made a go of it, but they have no spiritual discernment whatsoever. And therefore, the church is attempted to put in the methods of the world, the program of the world, and that just simply doesn't work. I'm perfectly willing to say that the suggestions and the recommendations that Moses' father-in-law made were good ones. It would take the load off of Moses. It would expedite matters. It would be orderly. It would conserve time. And it has all of that. That makes it look like a very attractive package. And his suggestion was a sincere one. He meant well. He was prompted by concern for the health of Moses. And you can't help but love him for this. He was anxious about Moses. And we also need to note this was not God's will, but God permitted it. Here you have the permissive will of God. If God would only stop us when we're wrong, it'd sure be helpful, by the way. But he permits it. He permits us sometimes when we go on headstrong with adopting methods that are contrary to what he wants done. Now, let's make a careful examination of this. I read all of this purposely to you today, and I think it'll take a careful examination to discover the subtle and sinister character of this man's advice. Notice, first of all, God had given no such instructions to Moses. It actually questioned the wisdom, the judgment, and the love of God. In other words, God wasn't doing the best that he could about Moses. Now, if God really loved Moses and cared for him, God would have made this suggestion a long time ago. And friends, I can hear the hiss of the serpent that was back in the Garden of Eden here. 
Because you remember, that was his suggestion to Eve. Oh, if you could only eat of that tree, you'd be wise. And God just hadn't permitted you to do that. In other words, God's not doing the best that he could by you. Now, if this had been best, God would have made this arrangement before. But it wasn't best. Now, that's something to note. There's a second thing here. God was dealing with Moses directly. He was equipping him for the great task of delivering this people. And God did not want a third party brought in. He didn't want the introduction of a party which would dissipate or insulate the power of God coming directly to Moses. You remember, God spoke face to face with Moses. And there is the tendency to want things and persons come between us and God. There are a great many people who do not like to do business directly with God. They like to go through a man or a church or a ceremony or through something, or even a book, or go to a conference. All of these have their place. But, friends, we need to go directly to God. And God was dealing with Moses directly, and he didn't want this crowd in there. Now, there's a third thing to note here when you look at it in depth. It created an organization out of which came the 70 later on. And the 70 were the Sanhedrin. And one night, oh, about 1,500 years after this, that Sanhedrin met and plotted the death of the Son of God. My friend, Moses didn't need this organization. God gave Moses power for the task and these arduous duties. These 70 men were not any more efficient for God than one. After all, it's the Spirit that quickeneth. And I want to say something at this particular juncture. There are people today in the church that feel like that what we need is the right method. We need to adopt the right method. And right now, we've got a bunch of preachers that are acting rather foolish, and I think rather silly. They're trying to identify themselves with this now generation, and they say they want to communicate. We have a seminary in Southern California that majors in this type of thing of being able to identify and communicate. And do you know that I never hear of them really reaching down and touching human life in Southern California? They just don't do it, friends. You see, today, God doesn't have to have a method or an organization or numbers or a system or some to come between or a ritual of good works. You see, the wisdom of God sweeps all of this aside, and there's nothing between our soul and God, and there's no broken reed to lean upon. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of man are contradictory. So much so that if one is wisdom, the other is foolishness. And God says the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. Oh, if I could only get this over today to our seminaries, even so-called good seminaries training our young men, that today they need to have the intellectual approach. They need to be clever and that type of thing. God has said, it's not with enticing words of man's wisdom, and it's not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. 
and the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and the wisdom that's from above is the wisdom we need today. And therefore, the thing that's important here, and it's a tremendous lesson for us today, we need the power of God, not more methods or different methods or new methods. That brings us now to the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus. And we've come now to another major division, the fourth one in the book of Exodus. And we're going to consider the law now. The law is condemnation. And from chapter 19 through 24. And here in 19, we have the arrival at Mount Sinai and the agreement to accept the law. Now, this is very important also, and we're moving slowly and cautiously and carefully through this section because it's been misunderstood and has not been understood. This section is not studied very often. We want to pay particular attention to it. Now, notice, and I begin reading now in chapter 19 of Exodus, in the third month. When the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. And they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. Now they've arrived at the place where the law is going to be given. Now, God's going to deal with these people very graciously and give them the opportunity of deciding whether they want to go on as he's been bringing them out of Egypt or do they want to accept and receive the law. Well, let's take a look at this because this is a very important section right here that's before us. I've said that, I think, about every chapter so far in Exodus, and I mean it, of each one. I want to read now verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, First, ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, that's traveling by grace. That's traveling by jet, the new jets. And then God asks them, will they receive the words that he commands them? And they foolishly agree to accept them instead of saying they've enjoyed the trip on eagles' wings. You've seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings. I have a little book, and I should mention it today at this juncture. This little book on eagle's wings is the book that deals with this great subject, and God has wonderfully blessed it. Now, we send out notes and outlines. No one has to send in anything. We've learned that we just can't afford to send out books. We do have to ask that you make a gift to the radio ministry in order for us to be able to send out any books. And that will be true on Eagle's Wings. And I'm going to touch on it. That'll be next time, of course. And I trust that you'll be listening and that you'll probably want the book because I won't be able 
to go into detail at all. You see, the eagle is a bird of prey. We read in Job 9:26, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. And the Lord Jesus himself said, And wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And yet the eagle is used as a symbol in Scripture of deity, of God. And you find in Ezekiel, there was the face of an eagle, deity. And the same thing in the fourth chapter of Revelation, the flying eagle. It represents deity. And it's admired for its wings, its ability to fly, to soar to the heights. Jeremiah in the fourth chapter, verse 13 says, "...his horses are swifter than eagles." And when David was giving a eulogy to Saul and Jonathan, he used the eagle as a panegyric of praise. In other words, the eagle is the jet plane of the bird family. Now, the children of Israel now come up to Mount Sinai. They've left the land of Egypt. God delivered them, and he has brought them now to Mount Sinai. And they're going to have to make a decision here at Mount Sinai. God says, you've seen how I bore you on eagles' wings. As we said last time, eagles' wings are a symbol of deity. And they set forth here the salvation by the grace of God. And we are going to see that they also set forth discipline by the grace of God. That's when we get over to Deuteronomy. But here we see it's salvation. Now, will you notice, God says, I have brought you on eagles' wings. Well, how did he do it? Well, first of all, he found them helpless and hopeless in the slavery of Egypt, and he delivered them. He redeemed them by blood. And that night when the death angel passed over and there was the death of the firstborn in the houses where there was not the blood, why, that ended the plagues. And that night the children of Israel marched out. Then they came to the Red Sea, and even then they were not out of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh could have well have slaughtered them, just like animals, and that's what he would have done had not God intervened again. And God brought them across the Red Sea by power, mighty power. Only the power of God could do that. And you see here, he's bearing them on eagles' wings. He's carrying them that way. And then they've come out now of slavery to freedom. They've come out of the brickyards to go to the promised land. From Egypt now to Sinai, from death to life, from Egyptian darkness to heaven's light, from the helplessness under the slave master to the very heart of God, all the way from defeat to victory. And now he's brought them to Mount Sinai. And on the way over, we've seen seven experiences that they've had. Now, those seven experiences are very meaningful, as we've seen for us today. We've seen how he met their need. These are experiences you and I'll have. And how God meets our need today. How he provides for us. God gave them manna. God gave them water from the rock. God sweetened the bitter waters at Marah. And that long 
three days wilderness march without any water. And then God delivered them from Amalek. The victory was won through prayer. You can't overcome the flesh, friends, by effort. I'm sure you've learned that. This is something you turn over to the Holy Spirit and learn to walk by the Spirit. The victory is on the hilltop, never down by fighting. And I'm sure many of us have learned that. And then we do not today serve God through worldly wisdom. We hear so much about the Lord's will, the Lord's will. I noticed recently in a church where they were having a series of meetings, and every service had to do how you can find the Lord's will, how you can find the Lord's will. And I came to the conclusion from some of the subjects that a great deal of worldly wisdom was being used to find out God's will for your life. I don't think you find it out that way, my friend. This idea today that we are to do the expedient and we're to use certain methods and that type of thing, that just doesn't happen to be God's way of doing it. Oh, God bore them on eagles' wings, and that's the way he bears us today. That's by his marvelous grace, and we walk by faith. That's the thing that God is saying to them here. He wants now to have them make a decision, though. He says, you've seen what I've done already. And now in verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all, for all the earth is mine. And his question is going to be, Are you willing to keep the commandments that God will give to you. And we'll see in a minute their reaction to that. And they're going to exchange grace for law, by the way. And a great many people do that today. But you and I live in a day when God saves by grace and he doesn't save by law. And what a contrast there is between law and grace. What a difference it is. The law demands, grace gives. The law says do, grace says believe. The law exacts, grace bestows. The law says work, grace says rest. The law threatens pronouncing a curse, grace entreats announcing a blessing. The law says do and thou shalt live, grace says live and thou shalt do. The law condemns the best man, and grace saves the worst man. The law reveals the character of God, and it also reveals the weakness of man. Paul says, Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped, the whole world come guilty before God. God never gave the law to save at all. Somebody says, then why was the law given? And as many of you have heard me say before, no one was ever saved by keeping the law. You couldn't mention a one. Moses here was a murderer, friends. He was no law keeper at all. And he's going to get very angry, we're going to see, and lose his temper and smite that rock twice when he shouldn't even have smitten it once. This is something that we need to note very carefully that the law was given, friends, for a very definite reason. Paul says in verse 19 of Galatians 3, 
Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added, not because of, but for the sake of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. You see, the law was given to reveal that we were sinners, and it was just given temporarily, till the seed should come, and that seed is Christ. And Paul goes on to say in verse 24, "...wherefore the law is our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith." Now, the schoolmaster here is not a school teacher. It is a slave that took the little child that was born into a home of a Roman patrician or a well-to-do Roman citizen. And he took the little child, clothed it, that is, in the sense he dressed him every morning, washed him, blew his nose when he needed it, and paddled him when he did. And then there came a day when the little fellow grew old enough to go to school. So the schoolmaster is the one who led him to school. And the word is pedagogus, which means to take the little one by the hand and lead him to the school. Now, the law, friends, is our schoolmaster, our pedagogus. He's the one that takes us by the hand, his little children, brings us to the cross and says, Little fella, you need a Savior. You need to be saved. You're a sinner. Now, the law is just that. And these people are given the opportunity. And now notice the reaction of these people to all of this in verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God's original intention for Israel was that they were to be a kingdom of priests, that all of the tribes were to be priests. But because of their failure to go in at Kadesh Barnea and their failure here at the giving of the law, and they made the golden calf, why, he only chose one tribe. But his ultimate goal, and in the millennium, you'll find that the entire nation of Israel will arrive at that original purpose of God, that they are going to be a nation of priests here on this earth. That'll be long after the church is removed and will be in heaven with the Lord Jesus in the new Jerusalem. Now, he says here, "...ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, verse 7, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. Now, listen to these people. What self-confidence they had. Verse 8, And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now, this is going to be the beginning of this dispensation of law that came in at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to these people. And it goes all the way from Mount Sinai to Calvary, all the way from the Exodus to the cross all the way from one mount to another mount. It is the revelation now that a people under ideal conditions are not able to keep the law. But will you listen to them? Verse 8, And all the people answered together and said, 
all that the Lord hath spoken we will do. Now, my friend, they haven't even heard what he's going to say. God says, would you like to have my commandments? Would you like now to be under law? They said, well, bring it on. We'll keep it. And that's the attitude of a great many people today, that you can please God, that natural man can please God. And friends, it's been demonstrated for 1,500 years. These people under law made a failure. They made a terrible failure. They were not able to keep the law. And it's impossible for the natural man to. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8. The reason God has us on a different plane altogether, that we can never please God. The law was given to control that old nature, and it doesn't because the old nature is a communist. You can't control it. It is a revolutionary. And will you listen to what he says in Romans 8, verse 6, "...for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be." Now, you and I have an old nature... And that nature is at enmity against God. It can never be obedient unto God. Have you made that discovery in your own life? Have you found out that you're a failure at meeting God's standard? And thank God He has another arrangement. And the self-confidence of people today who tell me that they keep the law. And that there's nothing that makes a hypocrite out of a person than to walk around and say today, I keep the law. When you know you don't measure up to God's standard at all. All right? Now let's look at it. God's going to give them the law. They say, bring it on. What self-confidence, what arrogance, if you please, and what awful, unspeakable blindness and ignorance this is. And yet there are multitudes today after God's already demonstrated that man could not be saved under law. He gave that dispensation. It's been tried out, and it's been tried out under ideal conditions, more ideal, by the way, than today. Now, verse 9 of this 19th chapter of Exodus, "...and the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come under thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people under the Lord. There are those that think that the giving of the law was a very beautiful thing. Many years ago in Georgia, I had a lady that came up to me. She was a very cultured, refined Southern lady. And she said to me, Mr. McGee, don't you think the giving of the law was such a beautiful and lovely thing? And I think I shocked her. I said, I don't see anything beautiful in it. It's a frightful and terrifying thing. All right? Let's look at this now, because here's the giving of the law. And you tell me whether you see anything beautiful in it or not. Listen, verse 10, And the Lord said unto Moses, 
Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. This is a tremendous scene, you say. Well, wait a minute. We're not through. Will you listen to this? And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Now, does that sound beautiful to you, my friend? Why, they were told not to even get near the mount and not to touch it. They'd be smitten dead. That's not beautiful. That's awful. Now, verse 13, "...there shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man. It shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount." And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. My friends, this is not a circus parade that's going by. This is the giving of the law, and this is terrifying. And the people trembled because it was a frightful experience. Listen, I'm not through reading. Verse 17, And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Do you want to tell me that you think that the giving of the law is beautiful? My friend, it was a terrifying thing that took place. Now we are told that when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. You see, a great many thought they might see something. Well, they'll not see anything. They're only going to hear a voice, because it's still true today. No man hath seen God at any time. Now will you notice, verse 22, "...and let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them." And Moses said unto the Lord, "...the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain, sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee, but let not the priests..." And the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. Now you have here in chapter 20 the giving of the law. And actually, the Ten Commandments is not all of it by any means. We have, first of all, here the 
Ten Commandments, and with it is the order for the altar in chapter 20. And remember, they both go together. There must be an altar for a sacrifice to be offered. Because, you see, the law reveals, and there must be the shedding of blood for sin. And just as you have in your bathroom a mirror, and that represents the law, and underneath is a basin. Now, you don't wash yourself with the mirror. The mirror reveals, but you wash yourself with the basin. And today there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flow, lose all their guilty stains. Now, we have here in chapter 20 the Ten Commandments and then instructions about the altar. That's important. But that doesn't end the law. You have then in chapters 21 and 24 what is called social legislation. Now, we're living in a day when a great deal of attention is being given to what is known as social legislation. We're just finding out how important that that is, especially in this complicated age. But God took care of this a long time ago, and that won't end it, because with the law, we'll have instructions for the making of a tabernacle. And that's the very center of the life of Israel. That tabernacle will be right in the center of the camp. And then you have in the next book, the book Leviticus, the service of the tabernacle. And all of that's part of the law. Now, when you get to Deuteronomy, you'll find out that you have not the repetition, although it looks like it, but it's not. What it is is the interpretation of the law after 40 years' experience with it. And that means that Exodus now, beginning here with chapter 20, all the way through the book of Leviticus and Numbers, for they are on the wilderness march there, and Deuteronomy, that's all the Mosaic system. That's the law. There are those today that like to say they're under law and that you must keep the law, and what they mean is just the Ten Commandments. But, friends, that was really a small part of it. Now, the first that's given of the Ten Commandments, this is a moral code. And let me just begin reading. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, on the basis of that, God says, I want now to give you my law. You've asked for it, and this is the basis now that I want to put you on. And he gives here, first of all, these Ten Commandments. Now, I can't go into a great deal of detail today, but we can mention certain things, and especially in this day when we're told we have a new morality. Well, the new morality goes back before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it was not even new then. It came right out of the Garden of Eden when man disobeyed God. It was before the flood, and it was after the flood. And it's not new. This age, we love to think we're sophisticated and refined sinners. We're not. We're just 
crude sinners in the raw, natural sinners. And this now puts before us God's standards. And no man can play fast and loose with the Ten Commandments and get by with it. I don't care who he is. He doesn't get by with it at all. Now, there was a graveyard for criminals on Blackwell's Island, and on one of these graves there was this marker and these words, "'Here lies the fragments of John Smith, who contradicted his Maker, played football with the Ten Commandments, and departed this life at the age of thirty-five. His mother and wife weep for him. Nobody else does. May he rest in peace.'" Well, that is something that reveals that here is a man that tried to defy the law of God, but nobody can play football with the Ten Commandments and escape the punishment of God. Oftentimes, the charges made against those of us who preach the grace of God that we do not have a proper appreciation for the law, that we actually despise it, we reject it, and actually teach because we are not saved by law, that we can violate it at will, break it with impunity. Well, may I say to you that that's not true at all. On the contrary, every preacher, the grace of God, who has a true perspective of the nature of salvation by faith, realize likewise the lofty character of the law. And Paul's answered that for us, "...shall we continue in sin?" And that's because we've been saved by grace. The answer is, God forbid, or let it not be. It cannot be. If you think you can continue to live in sin and break with impunity the Ten Commandments at will, then, my friend, you're not saved by the grace of God. Because when you're saved by the grace of God, you'll want to please God. You'll want to do His will. And the Ten Commandments certainly reveal the will of God. And therefore, today, I think every preacher of the grace of God has a respect and reverence for it. The psalmist says, "'Oh, how love I thy law! It's my meditation all the day.'" Well, what is the law? Someone has defined it as the transcript of the mind of God. Well, that's a very defective definition. The law is the expression of the mind of God relative to what man ought to be, his will for man, and his nature and character. But there's no grace or mercy in the law at all. The law made it very clear. It's an expression of the holy will of God. And the psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the law is perfect. That means it requires perfection on your part. And believe me, I've never met one yet that measured up to it. It's not some vague notion. It doesn't have anything to do with good intentions. It requires perfect obedience. The law is perfect, and then it's right. And that means that our notions of right and wrong are colored by our environment and by the fact we have a fallen nature. Now, the law is a revelation of God, and God has drawn the line between right and wrong. How do you know what's right? Well, because God says it, friends. 
Christians. And that right now is the question that's being asked by this generation that wants freedom. They say, why is it wrong to steal? They don't mind stealing, and yet they're using the one thou shalt not murder. Boy, how inconsistent this crowd is, and how ignorant they are of the law. Why is it wrong to lie or to steal? Because God says it's wrong. No other reason, friend. I see no reason for that. Oh, you say, well, it's for the good of mankind. You bet it's for the good of mankind, because anything God wants is for the good of mankind. And to keep it, well, it'd be a wonderful thing if man could keep it. But man doesn't keep it. And the jails and the locks on the doors and the fact that You have to sign about ten times today when you go to a bank to borrow money. Why? Because they don't trust you, friends. There was a day when it was said a man's good as his bond. That's not true today. We find, therefore, that the law is an expression, and it is a norm for human conduct, right and wrong. And stealing's wrong because God says it's wrong. Lying is wrong because God says it's wrong. Adultery's wrong because God says it's wrong. And then the law never enforces itself. The lawgiver must have power. And therefore, you'll find that the laws of God in nature, they really enforce themselves with a tremendous impact. Take the law of gravitation, for instance. You can go up as high as you want to go, but you better not turn loose. And that law of gravitation is in operation. You can't break it. You may think you can. A great many people think they can break the Ten Commandments, live by the new morality today, and get by with it. Reminds me of that whimsical story of the man who jumped off the Empire State Building in New York City when he went by the 50th floor. A man looked out the window and saw him. He says, well, how is it? (laughs) Well, he says, so far, it's so good. May I say to you, that's not where the law of gravitation enforces itself. Fifty more floors down, the man will find out, so far, not so good. The interesting thing is that laws must be enforced to be a law. And therefore, God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. There must be the enforcement. There must be the penalty. Now, there's another prevalent viewpoint concerning law that needs to be corrected, and that's confounding law and grace, confusing them into one system, and that's confusion confounded. The law is robbed of its majesty and meaning when you try to think you can play fast and loose with it. And there's no love in law. There's no grace in law. Grace is robbed of its goodness, its glow and glory when it's mixed with law. It's robbed of its wonder and worthwhileness, its attractiveness and its desire. The claims of law are unanswered, and the sinner's needs not met when they're brought together. The law sets forth what man ought to be, and grace sets forth what God is. And the majesty of the law is something that we do need to recognize. Now, the law reveals, therefore, who God is and how vast the gap and the yawning chasm is between God and man. Paul asked the question, "'Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law?' Well, you better listen to it, because 
man's been weighed in the balances by the Ten Commandments and found warning. And you don't measure yourself by others. It's very easy for the man on Mount Whitney to look down at the man on the anthill and say, I'm higher than you are. But the man on Mount Whitney didn't make it to the moon, and he didn't make it to heaven either. You don't measure up to God's standard. Now, the law reveals who man is and his inability to bridge that gap. Now, we know that what things soever the law it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. And Paul says in Romans 8, 3, "...what the law could not do." It's not the fault with the law, but there's a great fault with us. The law is a mirror, as we've seen. And we're told, don't be a hero of the Word, but a doer, because it's like a man looking at himself in the mirror. And that's all a great many people who talk about the law do. They look at themselves, they look at the mirror, and they think that they are all right. And they remind me of that fairy story years ago of this ugly queen. I think she was a queen. And she'd look at the mirror and she'd say, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And she wanted the mirror to say that she was. But the mirror told the truth and said she wasn't. It was someone else. And the interesting thing is a great many folk look at the mirror today, the Word of God or the Ten Commandments, and they do the same thing. They say, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the only difference is they say, Well, I am. They think they keep it. My friend, you need to get a little different perspective of yourself there. Now, the law never made a man a sinner, just reveal that he was a sinner. And the law was given to bring a man to Christ, as we've seen. It was our schoolmaster, our pedagogist, to take us by the hand, bring us to the cross, and say to us, Little man, you need a Savior because you're a sinner. Now, let's look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are divided into two major divisions. One is a man's relationship to God, and the other is a man's relationship to man. Now, let's look at this, and we'll find that we have four commandments, man's relationship to God. Now, the first, "...I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt." out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, he condemns polytheism. You see, there's no commandment against atheism. Why? Because there was no atheism in that day. They were too close to the mooring mask of revelation. You have to wait till you get to the time of David, and at that time, atheists began to appear. But he was called a fool. David said, "...the fool hath said in his heart." There is no God. Now, today he can be a college professor and considered to be an intellect, a brain. And you wonder whether he's so smart after all. Frankly, I've had to move with that group. I taught for a while in seminary and college, and I've moved with a few of these PhDs and these fellows. They call them brains. They call them an intellect. And may I say to you, some of the dumbest I've ever met are those that have a Ph.D. degree. That is, they may be smart in one line. They may have a photographic mind. But, boy, are they stupid in other relations. 
so that atheism was not prevalent then. It's prevalent in our day because we're too far from the mooring mass and men not willing to accept the revelation of God in his word. He says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, because in that day the pendulum of the clock was in polytheism, the worship of many gods. And today it's the worship of no god. The important thing to note here is that God condemns polytheism, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was darkened, and they began at that time to serve and worship the creature more than the Creator. That's what he's talking about here. Now, this deals with idolatry. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, that's in earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, someone says, well, that sure doesn't touch us today because we don't worship idols. I think we do. We're told today covetousness is idolatry. And anything that you give yourself to, especially in abandonment, that's your God. And a great many people today, they don't worship Bacchus, the cloven-footed God, but they worship the bottle. Just same, friends. Just think of the millions of alcoholics in this country right now. And that's one of the big problems. The liquor interests like to tell us about how much taxes they pay. They are not even paying today one hundredth of the bill of the casualties they're causing in the world. That is one of the propagandas that is being fed this generation. And if there ever were a group of people that would be brainwashed, we are those people today. And people worship the bottle. They worship the god Bacchus. And some worship Aphrodite. That's the goddess of sex. There are those that worship that. Some worship the almighty dollar. That's a great god today. Anything you give your time to. God says you to have no other gods before you. And then he says here in verse 7, I'm just lifting out these commandments, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And that means in the way of blasphemy. And today that's becoming very prevalent. It's still a commandment of God. Why is it wrong to take his name in vain? Because he's God and he's holy. And it does reveal a lack of vocabulary. A great many people can express themselves without using profanity. A man that was wonderfully converted several years ago down in Texas, he was telling me in the little town we lived in, he said that when I got converted, I lost over half of my vocabulary. And that's what he meant. He was taking God's name in vain. And then the fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. Thy God in it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that's within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, 
and he rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, we're going to see in this book of Exodus that the Sabbath day was given to the nation Israel in a very unusual way. God says that it is a covenant token between me and the children of Israel. Now, the day I don't think is important. After all, the change of calendars makes it impossible for us to know whether the seventh day is today our Saturday or not. I think it's not, but that is beside the point because as far as we're concerned, it makes no difference what day you observe. Now, we observe what we believe is the first day of the week, and it may or may not be, but we recognize it as the first day of the week. And because our Lord came back from the dead on that day, and that's the reason we observe it. We'll see all of this later on in this book of Exodus. Then we come now to man's relationship with man. It begins in the home. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long from the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And a father and mother should be worthy, by the way, of that honor. And we'll come to all of these again. And the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. This is being used by quite a few today. I've had any number of young men that have come in and talked to me about it. They said, well, you shouldn't kill, therefore you shouldn't be a soldier. May I say to you that thou shalt not kill was not given to a nation. It was given to an individual. The individual shall not kill as an individual. They have no right to do that. And a nation is given an authority today to protect human life by taking human life when one murders or does that sort of thing. Therefore, today, one is serving his country. This hasn't anything in the world to do with soldier service or the execution of a criminal at all. Thou shalt not kill. Our Lord said that it comes from anger, and we're not to be even angry with our brother. And thou shalt not commit adultery. And we're living right now in this sex revolution, it's called. It's not a revolution. It's something that's been coming down through the ages. Sex is certainly not new, but it's still adultery when this is committed outside of wedlock. God makes that very clear. And you may think you've changed it. You haven't changed it, friends, at all. This still stands. And then thou shalt not steal. And my point is that you ought to be permitted, if you can commit adultery today, then you ought to be permitted to steal. And if you're permitted to steal, you ought to be permitted to kill, by the way, even personally. May I say, this is a package that goes together. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That has to do with lying. Then the tenth, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, ox, ass, or anything that's thy neighbor's. Now, these are the Ten Commandments. And covetousness, remember Paul said that idolatry is covetousness, and that's one of the great sins of the present hour. Now, these things God condemns. We'll have occasion to look at all of them in a different way later on. But that brings us to the end of the Ten Commandments. Now, in this chapter, we're going to see instructions concerning an altar, because you need an altar to go with the Ten Commandments. You need a Savior, friends, today. The law reveals we've come short of the glory of God. Now, today, friends, we find that we've come to this 
20th chapter, verse 18. Last time we saw the giving of the law, that is, the part of the law that we call the moral law, the moral code, the Ten Commandments. Now, he's not through by any means, because in the next few chapters, in fact, through chapter 24, why, we have social legislation. And then we have the instructions for building a tabernacle and Leviticus, the service of it. And that's all part of the law. All goes in one package, by the way. Now I'm reading verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Last time we called attention to the fact that the giving of the law is not a beautiful or pretty thing. There are people that think that it is, and they are generally the folk that haven't read very much about it, that it was wonderful that God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Well, it's not presented to us that way here in the Scripture. We saw before the thunderings and the lightnings and the danger that was, and now the people, very frankly, they backed off as far as they can get. And they tell Moses, we're afraid, but we want you to speak to us, but not the Lord. And verse 19, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we'll hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Children of Israel didn't think it was pretty. And then verse 20, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. You see, the law presented a very high standard. The law of the Lord is perfect. Nothing wrong with the law. And it demands, therefore, perfection. And friends, if you're not prepared to give perfection, you better get on some other kind of standard or basis than saying you're saved but keeping the law. Because if you're not perfect, you won't make it. The law is perfect. It demands that. And I thank God that under grace he'll take a poor sinner like I am. Grace reveals something of the goodness and wonder of our God. Now, he continues on here, verse 21, "...and the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near under the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven." Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. Now, this is very significant and important thing. Why did God appear in just this way under the children of Israel? Well, the reason, I think, is quite evident, and it's simply because he wanted to impress upon them that he is the living God and that the idols around them, and they were idolaters, we'll find that out later, that down in the land of Egypt, all this business of worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, and he's now probably coming closer to these people than he'd ever come before. That's very important here to see. Now we come to the mention of the altar here. God gives them the commandments, and along with the commandments, there's given an altar. 
altars for sacrifice. This is the same thing you have in your bathroom. You have a mirror, and underneath that mirror you have a basin. The mirror reveals that you have a smudge spot on your face, and down beneath is a basin, and you wash your face with the basin. And so there is the mirror. The mirror is this law of God, reveals his standard. But the law is perfect. Man's not perfect, and it reveals that smudge spot. But thank God there's a basin down there, and that's the purpose of the altar. That altar speaks of the cross of Christ and the blood that he shed. Now, notice the instructions concerning this altar, because again, this is the altar they had to use before the tabernacle was made. And it was apparently an altar that everywhere they journeyed, they made one like this. They couldn't take this one with them. The one on in the tabernacle was one that could be transported. Now I'm reading verse 24. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings. Now, there's no sin offering here. Why? Well, we'll not get to that till Leviticus, because there could be no sin offering or trespass offering until the law was given. The peace offering reveals that man needs a sacrifice that reconcile him to God, and that Christ did make peace by the blood of his cross. And the burnt offering speaks of who he is. His worthiness, his ability to save. Now, this altar that's to be made of earth was the place they were sacrificed, burnt offerings, peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I'll bless thee. So obviously they made an altar everywhere they went on the wilderness march until the instructions for the tabernacle were given. Now, verse 25, "...and if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it." Now, this seems strange to us today. In other words, there would be those that would say, well, let's make an altar of stone. And this man says, I'm an engraver. And I think it'd be nice if we could have it attractive-looking and make it appeal and very beautiful-looking. Now, here is something that's a very delicate matter, but it's very important. And there's a great spiritual lesson that is here. God says that you make my altar, you make it of plain stone, no engraving, and the minute that a tool is put upon that, why, it's polluted. Now, I don't want anything that has to do with it at all. Now, we've gone way past this, and we've come to the place where today a great many people feel that there should be in worship things that are beautiful, that everything should be made as beautiful as possible with music and soft lights, beautiful colors, and that the message should be given in very low tones and a very dignified manner and as flowery as it possibly can be. Well, we've come through that period and we've had that type of thing. 
It's quite interesting that that made no appeal to the unsaved world. Liberalism emptied our churches. Liberalism years ago couldn't have an evening service. Somebody said to me, why do you think that the liberalists got so involved today in all of this social setup? Quite obviously, he wasn't doing anything for years, and he felt very much left out of it. A man said to me, well, why don't you start marching and protesting? My friend, that's not my business. I have too much to do. I keep busy without marching or protesting. Mine's not a protest. Mine is a positive message. And I'm not protesting anything. I'm just giving out the Word of God, and it steps on a lot of toes, I can tell you that. But it's the Word that'll do it. We're to give it out as it is. And there should not be any attempt today to water down the message. Now, don't misunderstand me. As I say, this is a delicate subject. No one today has put more emphasis in having an attractive place of worship. I've had the privilege of remodeling the interior of the Church of the Open Door in my ministry. I had to go through a long period of just urging this upon the church before they were willing to do it. And it was at some expense. I'm for soft lights. I love beautiful music. And I love flowery speaking. But my friend, when any of these things obscure the message of the cross, and take attention away from the person of the one who died on that cross, then that becomes the offense of the cross, a real offense. And that's the thing today that God does not want to happen. And Paul, when he went to the city of Corinth, you will recall, they were philosophical. There were quite a few of the priests there of the heathen religions trying to identify with all the sin of Corinth. And some of them did pretty well in identifying with it. They had many hippie types in the city of Corinth. But when Paul came there and saw the situation, saw that they were second-hand philosophers, they wanted to argue, they wanted to discuss, they wanted to appear intellectual, they wanted to appear to be helped, they wanted to belong to the now generation. My, how they were going in every direction. And Paul, who'd had a similar experience in Athens where they wanted to hear some new thing, Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And friends, if that's left out of the message, I don't care how high the steeple is. I don't care how loud the church bell is. I don't care how beautiful the sanctuary is. I don't care how lovely and soft the music is. And I do not care how educated the preacher is that's in the pulpit. That is not a church. But may I say to you, that's anything but a church. That is polluted as far as God is concerned. The thing that is important is the message of the Word of God. That's the thing that should go out today. There is an attempt to dress it up and to do something with it. This is very important to see here. This is instructions for the altar. We present just Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is our message. That should be our message. Now, there's something else here. Verse 26, 
neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Now there are great many that would build some nice, lovely steps to go up to the altar. That would make it very convenient, you see. And when a man would step up, and they wore a type of a skirt in that day, why, the nakedness would be revealed. God says, I don't want to see it. That which speaks of the flesh, God can't use. And let me make this very personal. Anything that Vernon McGee does that's of the flesh, God hates it. And God won't use it at all. God does not want a display of the flesh in anything that has to do with his work. We need to guard against that type of thing. And sometimes it disturbs me when people can only see the preacher and not see the one that he's trying to present. I personally don't like anyone to tell me it's a beautiful sermon. The last thing in the world I want to preach is a beautiful sermon. I want to preach a beautiful Savior. And I'd like for people to live and say, My, isn't Jesus wonderful? Not that the preacher is. That doesn't make any difference about him. I've had very few real compliments since I've been a minister. But when I was a pastor as a student down in Georgia on a little white unpainted church on the side of a red clay hill, and one morning after the message, after everyone had left, a boy there is a country boy, and I mean country, friends. He wore high yellow shoes, buttoned up too, by the way. And he waited around as timid as he could be. He was really a country boy. After everybody left, why, he came up to me and tears were in his eyes. He took hold of my hand and he said, "'My, I didn't know Jesus was so wonderful.'" And he wanted to say something else, but he wasn't able to say it. And he just turned and walked out of the church. And I watched him because that church was in a cotton patch then. It's in the city there now, but that was a cotton patch in my day. And I saw him walk down across that cotton patch. And I watched him as he walked, that country boy. And he said he didn't know Jesus was so wonderful. And I said, oh, God, let me so preach that People will think Jesus is wonderful. That was a compliment. I've had many like that, by the way. And we don't need the display of the flesh in the ministry, in the pulpit, or in church work.